Business News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And tonight we've got a cracking story for you. Mike Lomas, you might remember, uh, our guest uh, co-host tonight, Chris Logan. Chris, you'll remember Mike Lomas, the CEO of uh, Group 5. Yes, yes. He was arrested last week on 745 million rand corruption at the Kusili plant. Now, how amazing is that? Going to be extradited to South Africa to face the music here. He's got to be by far the biggest fish caught up, certainly the biggest private sector fish uh, caught up in the corruption net thus far. We'll be hearing from Paul O'Sullivan on how Lomas got himself into such an awful tangle. And I think it's, uh, it was a big shock when I heard it for the first time on Thursday that he was in the magistrate's court in uh, Westminster. Well, he's coming here. Paul will have that story for us. And then my favorite tech analyst, Ernest Kaplan, is with us. Ernest, good to have you on the show tonight. Thanks, Alec. Lovely to be here with you. Because it's right in the middle of earnings season in the United States, we had some more numbers coming out today from Spotify. We've had Alphabet. We've had Microsoft, Netflix uh, last week. So lots happening there. It's moving share prices quite dramatically as a consequence of what these companies are doing. And Ernest will be able to give us the inside track on what we should be buying and not. We'll also be talking to Rayburn Hendricks, who's the chief executive of Revigo, a renewable energy company that is heading for the JSE at some point in the future. And then Chris, uh, our guest market commentator, will be talking us through Distel, which is one of the companies that has defied all the odds, lockdown or not, it's up 65%. But first, before we get into uh, the pretty heavy program we've got for you tonight, our editor-at-large, Jackie Cameron, has got the flash briefing. President Cyril Ramaphosa has acknowledged to the people of South Africa that state capture took place under the ANC, but he insisted that the vast majority of ANC leaders, members and cadres are vehemently opposed to corruption in all its manifestations. Ramaphosa said this at the Zondo Commission of Inquiry into Corruption. The South African president also said in his testimony that other political parties are also guilty of deploying their own in key positions. Take a listen. And this chairperson is not unique only to the ANC. Uh, if you were to, to, to look at what has also happened to, to other political parties, and I can think of alongside, say, the ANC, like the Democratic Alliance, they do have that as well. They do, in the end, get approval process for the appointment of people uh, from the party, and alluding to the fact that the deployment committee uh, in other organizations is there, even if they may not call it that. And I guess <laughs> the ANC in its uh, exuberance uh, has gone ahead to say, we will call it a deployment committee. And yet in other cases, it, it happened uh, as it happens. I know, for instance, and I've referred to it in my affidavit, that even in other countries, I know, for instance, with the, with the, the UK, uh, particularly under Margaret Thatcher, the question used to be asked, is that person one of us? And there's even a book written to that effect, one of us. And what that meant was, even in her governance of the UK, they always sought to find people who were one of them. Uh, and so this is not unique to the ANC. Under mounting criticism for dominating vaccine resources, the US says it will help India by sending items needed to manufacture vaccines as part of an aid package. European countries are also pledging help as new cases in the South Asian country smash world records. The moves, says Bloomberg, show a growing realisation that the vaccine nationalism many wealthy nations have embraced has the potential to backfire and prolong the global pandemic. South Africa plans to buy Russia's Sputnik V vaccines and shots developed by China's Sinopharm as it steps up efforts to tackle the coronavirus. Health Minister William Kizeh told lawmakers in Cape Town on Wednesday 
that the government will order 10 million doses of each shot. He says we are doing this now because we do expect the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority to approve those vaccines. South Africa is the nation that's been hardest hit by the pandemic on the continent. It resumed its administration of Johnson and Johnson vaccines to healthcare workers on Wednesday after putting their use on hold for two weeks because of concerns that they could be linked to blood clots. Mango Airlines, the low-cost arm of state-owned SAA, was forced to suspend all flights after missing payments to the country's airports regulator. The carrier's senior management is in emergency discussions with the government about finding a solution, Mango tweeted on Wednesday. Bloomberg says the company owes an unspecified amount to airports company South Africa, which owns and manages hubs including Johannesburg and Cape Town. South African retailer Pepco says half-year earnings are expected to rise by at least 20%. This is supported by growth at its discount clothing business and a reduction in net debt and finance costs. South African clothing retailers have been hit as a second wave of COVID-19 infections and job losses constrain discretionary spending. But, says Reuters, Pepco, which is majority owned by Steinhoff, is faring better than others with its focus on budget-conscious consumers, including more than 17 million South Africans on welfare and special COVID-19 grants. And that was your Biz News Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. For more on those stories, do go to biznewsradio.com. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Chris Logan, that's a slippery uh, Cyril Ramaphosa. Jeepers. I mean, cater deployment. Oh, yeah, everyone in the world does it. Come on. They don't steal. (laughs) Not everyone has a 32% unemployment rate. (laughs) Extraordinary. Extraordinary. But I suppose it's the worldview. You know, it's the worldview he has. Well, Maggie Thatcher did it, so... What did Maggie Thatcher do? I'm pretty sure she didn't inject members of the Conservative Party into major uh, operations. And, in the, in um, you know, obviously, the 15 months will only come up at the end of June. So tell you what, do you want to just June, mute? The profile therefore based on those. Mute. Here we go. Thank you. Uh, Ernest, something was coming through on your computer there. Uh, Chris, anyway, we'll, we'll uh, deal with that in due course. But... Let's find out now what the markets have been doing. And uh, Brightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. My colleague Justin Rowe Roberts is on the markets. Lots to digest after the long weekend, Alex. Starting with the JSE All Share Index up at 67,800. Earnings season in the US. Let's take a look at what the numbers look like. Tesla beat earnings expectations and increased revenues by 74% year on year. Tesla sold 10% of its stake in Bitcoin, generating $100 million in profit as Musk stated it was to demonstrate the, the liquidity of the token. Tesla shares are down 6% this week. Google smashed earnings expectations by 70%, reporting earnings per share for the quarter of $26. The shares have risen by 4.5% in New York in the morning session. Alphabet generated $55 billion in free cash flow for the quarter. They've announced a $50 billion share buyback program, and they've got $136 billion in cash on the balance sheet. Incredible numbers. Microsoft also beat expectations, despite the share trading 3% weaker this morning. It begs the question what these estimates mean if the market shrugs it off as it has with Tesla and Microsoft. The mother of all margin calls strikes again, with UBS reporting a three-quarter of a billion dollar hit due to the Archegos demise. The Swiss lender said that it was not material, hence the delay in announcing. If a 10 billion rand hit hit isn't communicated to shareholders, what other once-off losses are shrugged off under the carpet? On the JSC, Sassel up 12 Rand to 250 Rand a share, Redefine up 7% to 4 Rand 50, Capitec up 100 Rand to a share at under 1,500 Rand a share, and WBHO down 1% to 114 Rand a share after the company announced that the PIC has increased its stake in the business to 25%. This is usually a leading indicator that the shares have peaked. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 14 rand 28 to the dollar, 19 rand 90 to the sterling, and 17 rand 29 to the euro. Gold is down at $1,774 an ounce. 
Brent crude is trading at $67.60 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back eight, 780,000 rand a Bitcoin. That's nasty that uh, the PRC buys something and the shares have peaked. Well, I suppose they did invest in Ekbal survey. <laughs> they violate the fundamental rule of finance that's buy low and sell high. They do the opposite, Alec. <laughs> 25% is quite a serious uh, uh, slug of a company, a listed company. Chris, there, it brings in all kinds of connotations, doesn't it, once you get above 25%? Sure, sure. It's it's almost unhealthy, I think, you know. Um, but there's a tremendous concentration in the local market. So, you know, and it's unfortunate that the guys like the PRC keep getting bigger. You know, in some ways it's just reflecting that the government sector is getting bigger. Chris, we're getting a loop uh, coming through. Is it, have you got something going on in... No? no. Okay, we'll have a look on our side to see what's happening here. Uh, in the next couple of minutes. But, well, let's get on to that first of the discussions today, uh, and that's with Ernest Kaplan, who is the founder and chief executive of Kaplan Equity Analysts. Before we get there, this market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Ernest, if you don't mind, I'm going to actually have a look at the tech and try and sort this out. I had a really good, interesting uh, a really good interview with Brad Barrett, uh, who is a rugby superstar, but many South Africans don't really know him because he left the country as a young man when he was 21 years old. And uh, here's a little clip uh, on why he came back to South Africa. In other words, swam against the tide. Let's have a listen. Coming back to South Africa. That's very much swimming against the tide nowadays where it seems every second person who has the means would rather be living somewhere else in the world. What motivated your decision? You know what it is? I think uh, for many people, they always perceive the grass to be greener on the other side. You know, however, you know, I've lived in the UK for five years with kids having now been back for five months. You, you still really... Um, have to be so appreciative to, for all the incredible things we have in South Africa. You know, not just the people, uh, the friendly, the warmness, the outgoing nature of, of most South Africans, but the climate, amazing food and culture and things to do in this country is, is truly unsurpassed by any country I've been to. So to, to have the opportunity to bring my two young boys up in South Africa I think my, my son's now doing more extramurals in a week than he used to do in the UK in a year. So getting them to, to live the lifestyle I was afforded as a young boy has been a, a dream come true for my wife and I, and we've, uh, we haven't looked back since. Your wife, is she from this country? Yes. Uh, we, we met in Durban. We started dating before I went to the UK. She finished her English communications and media degree and joined me later on about 18 months after I left for the UK. And then our two sons, uh, Leo and Noah, were born in London in 2015, and our second was born in the, the heat of lockdown in April last year. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Nice little story that, isn't it, Ernest, to hear of somebody who literally is a superstar in the UK. Uh, anywhere he walks around there, he gets uh, asked for autographs and adulation, etc. And here he comes back home to South Africa to, uh, well, to pursue his entrepreneurial endeavors, including a fintech company. So it's, uh, it's right up your street as well. But we won't talk too much about Brad Barrett. We'll talk more about what's going on on Wall Street today. I see Microsoft, the reaction was very negative. The share is down by 3%, whereas Alphabet, the reaction the other way around. Sorry, Ernest, we got you now. Okay, can you hear me now? Perfect. Thank Super. you. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, when one tries to look at the reaction of these stocks on a daily basis, um, especially around earnings time, I think they go a little bit crazy because in the week before the earnings come out, you get a lot of 
um, you know, updates and things like that. The share moves a lot, and then on the day of the results, um, you get a lot of people that sort of say, okay, right, we're going to take our profits, and, and off we go. And then I think a lot of longer-term shareholders look at these movements and say, but how on earth could the share go down if the results were so good? So I think, you know, from my side, looking at it more from a long-term perspective, and uh, and I think the results of – uh, certainly, um, Alphabet, Google, and and Microsoft are are, are, are certainly on track um, for for long term uh, long term shareholders. I don't think there, there's anything in their results that that people would be upset about. And this whole antitrust potential coming out of a Biden White House and a Democratic controlled Congress is that something that we should be paying more attention to? Yeah, I mean. Look, I think I'm not an expert in, in, in that, Alec, and, and I'm not going to claim to know what the outcome of that would be. Um, I just get the sense that, you know, um, the U.S. at this point, my, my feeling personally is I don't think they would cripple all their, their top companies. I mean, if you look at the, the big companies um, um, that we're talking about here, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Google, um, and Facebook. I mean, these are these are the lo- pretty much the largest companies in the world, and 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 they and they impact uh, on a global scene. So I, I think that there is case to to um, to regulate certain aspects of them, but but I can't see them just crushing them totally. The, um, that's the, just my personal view. It was a long report. I think 450 pages that was compiled by a Democrat-dominated antitrust committee. Uh, they spent a lot of time looking at it. They brought it to Congress or released it in Congress last year when Trump was still the president, and it didn't get anywhere. But they did. There has been discussions about it being resuscitated. We're also seeing the antitrust uh, discussions in in or uh, in China where they are applying antitrust issues, forcing Tencent to accept products from Alibaba and Baidu and vice versa. So there's a, there's a move in this respect, which uh, almost like the politicians don't like the fact that these tech companies are getting that substantial. But for the moment, you say nothing really yeah. to worry about from investors' perspective. Yeah, look, I, I mean, let's just also um, put it in perspective here. I don't think all of the success of these companies is because they've been um, unfairly um, anti-competitive or, or things like that, or they total monopolies. I, I think, I think there's certain parts of their business which, which perhaps have pushed things a little bit too far, and, and perhaps those areas need to be reined in a little bit. But I mean, it's not going to crush these companies, in my view. I think what's more important, Alec, if we look at the um, the so-called fangs or the or the or the or the large. Um, the large companies like Microsoft and 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 Google, um, and I think tomorrow we have um, we have Apple and Facebook, and the next day we've got Amazon. You know, I mean, if, if you just look at Microsoft, what they're saying, their CEO um, Satya Nadella, who's by the way, fantastic CEO from from inside the group and and a fantastic technologist, saying that this whole digital transformation hasn't slowed down. And in fact, it's actually accelerating. And, you know, I think COVID, what that's done is it's really sort of forced companies to get more digital and get their act together when it comes to all these things. And so I think, you know, it's a very positive thing for um, for companies like Microsoft because everyone then wants to rely on on um, best of breed uh, technologies and and who who better to trust than than somebody like Microsoft who's been there all along I'm not saying they're the best in everything but I think it just helps them hugely and when you look at their results I mean I mean it's actually staggering Alec just look at Microsoft their revenue was up 19 percent. Their operating profit was up 31%. I mean, that's phenomenal. Exponential. For a business of yeah. that side, of that size. And, and what's really driving Microsoft <clears throat> is inside there, they've got that Azure, which is their, their, their whole cloud initiative. Um, it's basically them 
and uh, Amazon's AWS and then Google's GCP is a smaller third place, but it's the two of them that are the biggest. And, and that thing's growing at 50%. Um, and it's, and, and, and it's, it's really powering Microsoft. Um, they've got a few other areas that are doing very well, like gaming, et cetera. But I think Microsoft's the kind of stock you can buy now and just keep it for the next 10 years. You'll probably do very well. Ernest, um, as you're saying, incredible numbers by Microsoft, beating expectations by 20%, the share down 3%. Is that Wall Street saying that the sell-side analysts are too conservative? These these uh, expectations are, are an average of, of the Wall Street sell-side, and is that the market just saying that um, those estimates were too conservative, or, or, or what's what's happening in the in the price action there? I, I, I honestly say so I don't know. I don't know why it's down 3% and I wouldn't even want to try and say I could track these things on a daily basis. But what I will point out is if you look at Microsoft and you go back maybe just a few weeks, um, where are we? Uh, sorry, I was on the wrong one here. Let's look at Microsoft. You go back a few weeks, they were at like 220 and they went up to 260 over the last sort of month. So you know, a lot of that's kind of baked in maybe a little bit too much and, and now it kind of comes off a few percent. So I don't think, you know, I think one's got to look at these things on a longer-term basis. It's pretty much doubled since the COVID bottom. Chris? So that's that's quite amazing. From your side, uh, I know you've been watching these numbers as well, no doubt, because the whole world is. Uh, is there anything that stood out for you or do you want to pose something to Ernest? No, I think... Ernest is, you know, just highlighting how these things just keep growing. And um, they're almost sucking everyone in. I know I, I spent part of my morning looking at, you know, updating my Microsoft subscription just to remain, you know, half competitive. So, <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. Uh, when, when they moved to that 365 uh, in other words, the the updated, the automatically updated subscription, we put it into our portfolio, our business portfolio, and my goodness, has it been a great performance since then. And Alec, wasn't this a conversation we're having the other day? We're talking about bubble, where we are in the territory, and we, an analyst was saying that big tech isn't necessarily in a bubble. The fangs, I mean, they're still um, uh, creating exponential earnings, 20% plus. It's more that emerging tech uh, that are still going through the J-curve. They're still losing money before they'll become profitable, those companies. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly what the story is, is that the uh, Ray Dalio's bubble indicator says that tech generally and the, the major stocks are not overpriced, but it's the, it's the, the little ones. It's the emerging tech stocks. It's the favorites of uh, Kathy Wooded Ark uh, that have got to a, a level that the expectations are, are really out of the ballpark. But before you go, Ernest, the two of you, I'd love yeah. to hear you and Chris, because Chris likes looking for undervalued situations. And we've seen EOH come down, a South African company, come down from, was it 197% anyway? And it's now bumping around. It was below eight rand yet, uh, or last week. Is it something that you're looking at now? Would you consider it? Or would you say to someone like Chris Logan, hey, go and do your homework on this one because it could be a goodie? Or are you still nervous? Look, I mean, there's probably, uh, I would say in short and bottom line, there's, there's probably some upside um, with EOH. Um, but there's still a lot of question marks um, on the longer-term picture because for EOH to do well over the next, say, five years or three years, they're going to have to grow their top line, and they're still busy cutting that business down. So th there's no real indication yet of, um, you know, of that. So you might be able to make some kind of adjustment to more sort of realistic valuation maybe from 8 to 10 or something like that. But I'm talking about like a big thrust from 10 to 30 or 40. Uh, it's going to take a, a whole new strategy. And I don't think they, they, they actually have communicated any of that yet. And I don't think the current management are in a position to convince the market yet of that. So we just got to wait and see really. Ernest, last question from my side. The Adapt IT huge group, Valaris Saga, what's your take? 
I think it's a very exciting one for Adapta T shareholders because now they've got options, I guess. Um, I do think it probably, you know, it's a very difficult one because when you go with huge, you can continue to uh, benefit from further upside. When you go with Volaris, you're just getting cash and, and you have to go away. Um, and that, that cash offer of theirs at six rand fifty does seem a bit low, to be honest. I mean, it seems like it should be more like eight, nine, ten rand sort of thing, not not six rand fifty. Because what they want to do with it over the next five years or so is is to turn that whole thing around and and do very well with it. So yeah, I'm I'm kind of like if if Valoris could offer more, I would say go with that. Chris, before we pick up with Paul O'Sullivan yes. on that Mike Lomas story, uh, EOH, have you followed that at all? I haven't really, Alec, but my gut feel would be there's a lot of value uh, lurking around on the JSC. The problem is, you know, whether we like it or not, JSC companies have got the slur of the figures often not being reliable because of all these crises uh, or, or you know, scandals, and you really need to do your homework. But but I definitely think there's a lot of value, you know, Adapta T shown it. I think it's up at now at 690 bid. You know, it's way above the 650. And, you know, I'll remind you that Carew's up another 6% tonight to $41.5, so it's nearly 50% above its NASDAQ IPO. Um, the, you know, the, the unfortunately, the one thing I've realised there's a slur of being a JSC company. And um, the work I'm just doing at the moment, guess what? The JSC itself, JSC Limited, is the worst performing stock exchange and the worst rated stock exchange in the world that I can find over the last five years. Wow. It's the only one to lose value. You know, despite this tremendous exuberance of financial markets, the JSC Limited is down over five years. And that tells you something because exchanges are, you know, high quality operations. So, you know, if that's happened to JSC Limited, and obviously there's a number of reasons, you know, you can rest assured it impacted car track, which we know it did, and it's impacting EOH. So, you know, it's it's a huge amount of work to, to work through this stuff and dig through and, you know, find out a true value. And maybe the value, you, you've got to go to a different exchange to crystallize it. Well, some uh, sobering words there from Chris Logan, our guest co-host tonight. I think we'll have a similar insight now from Paul O'Sullivan, the ace sleuth uh, who joins us on the phone. Paul, Mike Lomas came into our studios numerous occasions in times gone by as a uh, leader and upstanding member of the South African business community. He was in court on Thursday, on Thursday in London, in Westminster, at the Westminster Magistrates Court, in connection with a 750 million rand corruption issue that you know all about that happened at Kusili Power Station. It was a surprise to most South Africans that uh, uh, Mike Lomas has been dragged into it. Was it, a, was it a surprise to you? No, not really. Um, we'd interviewed him last year. Um, I think it was actually the year before last. Um, I, I flew to London. I met with him in uh, November uh, 2019, um, and he unpacked everything for us. Um, I don't want to say anything that's going to prejudice his his trial, but clearly um, he had a lot to say regarding Trindadi and the other the other people, uh, including Abram uh, Masango at ESCOM. Trindadi, just explain that connection. Okay, so Trindadi used to work for Group Five. Trindadi left Group Five, I think, in or about 1998. Um, at that stage, uh, Mike Lomas would have been the group CEO of Group 5, and he remained the group CEO until 2007 when he sold his share options and, I suppose, took early retirement. And Trindadi crossed swords with one Paul O'Sullivan 
if I recall, it it came out into the public in December, but there was quite a lot of of, uh, of difficulties you had to go through as a consequence. Well, it's become the modus operandi of a lot of these people involved in corruption is that when they come onto my radar screen, they try and get me off their radar screen, uh, normally with applications for interdicts and stuff like that. Um, and uh, he used the proceeds of crime to hire lawyers that were, were, shall we say, flexible enough to come and attack me. And they did that. And I think uh, a month or six weeks later, um, Chindali was arrested and charged with, with the corruption which we had investigated and opened a docket against him a year earlier. So there's a relationship going back some years between Trindadi and Mike Lomas. Lomas presumably would have been fully aware of what Trindadi was doing uh, by bribing people at Eskom on the Kosili plant. Well, I think what happened was um, Trindadi left Group 5 in 98 and he started a company which became a group of companies then. We call it the Tubular Group, for want of a better expression. And... Um, in 2008, which was 10 years after he'd left Group 5, he contacted Mike Lomas and asked him to come on board as a consultant, which Mike Lomas did, and he acted as a consultant for uh, a number of years. And during that period, I suppose, there were issues at Kusili Power Station, which were a mixture of engineering and contractual issues, and Mike Lomas assisted in sorting some of those out. What is that uh, euphemism for? Um, well, for example, Trindadi's group didn't have proper VEE, which they were supposed to have. So um, Mike Lomas was able to help them put their VEE in place. And he was able to sort out some of the technical issues. You know, Mike is a very competent engineer, and he was able to help sort out some of their technical issues. Um he described, when I met with him, he described Trindadi as a micromanager. Um, and then he reached a point where um, the people at ESCOM needed, quote-unquote, financial assistance. And um, the, Mike Lomas got drawn into that, and I think that's where he crossed the line. He's been granted bail of £100,000. That's uh, not an insignificant number. And he had to put up a surety of £250,000. Now, you translate that into rands, and you're talking about 6 million rands uh, after the just, – just not to be behind bars in the UK. The NPA says this is the first step in extraditing the guy to South Africa. Why – yeah. Has he not been? Why did he talk to you, but not talk to the NPA? Because the NPA say he's not he's not collaborating with the South African officials. Yeah, I think he got bad advice in the UK. So when I started talking to him, he was very cooperative. In fact, we we took a detailed sworn statement and we passed it on to the NPA. Um, in fact, we passed it on to um, the SIU. Uh, they'd been investigating him for a while, so. We then managed to get all of his bank statements, which he gave us a power of attorney to go to the bank and get them. And we did an analysis on the bank statements, and we passed all that information on as well. And in the sworn statement he made, um, he undertook to cooperate with the investigation and um, to provide the, the necessary evidence. So about three or four months later, he suddenly did a U-turn, and um, we instructed on his behalf, actually he instructed the lawyer, he instructed a local lawyer, we gave him a recommendation of a decent lawyer, uh, which was Daryl Furman at Daryl Furman Associates, and Daryl started to represent him, and the next thing, he suddenly terminated his relationship with us and with Daryl Furman and said he wanted to do his own thing. And I think the lawyers that he hired in the UK probably told him, sit tight and it will go away, which it obviously hasn't. Wow, that's a high-risk strategy. I, I guess to be, if you had a choice between being in jail in South Africa and being in jail in the UK, it's not really that difficult to pick the better. Well, yeah, we, 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 you know, I've since communicated with him and I've told him that, listen, I'm 
still confident that you're going the wrong way about this. And what you should actually be doing is tendering your corporation and voluntarily returning to South Africa to give evidence. And if you volunteer to come back and you come of your own steam, you're not going to sit in a prison while you're waiting for the trial. And you can probably, I mean, he's, he's no spring chicken anymore. Um, he's 72 years old. Um, he would probably have been able to negotiate, which was my suggestion to him, that he should try and negotiate some sort of a plea bargain in terms of which he gets a suspended sentence and maybe a fine um, and, and, and then assist in, in, in the prosecution of the others. Um, he's elected to go his own route and good luck to him. I think he will be extradited. And then when he's brought back, not under his own steam, he will have to sit probably um, in a South African jail waiting for the trial. And you've been in a South African jail. Not a, happy, not a happy place, not a pleasant place to be. Yeah, but of course I've been there for, not for breaking the law, but for investigating corruption. So I was arrested by dirty cops and I was um, detained unlawfully and, yeah, de tortured, the whole, the whole works. Paul, it's a very strange story. Here you've got a guy who's 70, as you say, 72 years old. He has... Many people in South Africa would have looked up to him. Certainly at the time when he was CEO of Group 5, it was a, it was a major company, a good performing company. And now he's got himself involved in something where he really seems, from what you've told us, he did have an out after participating in bribery and corruption, but he's decided to risk not being extradited. The whole thing well, smacks of, of yeah. I think of, just to just to clarify, he didn't necessarily he didn't necessarily have the out. My suggestion was that he negotiate the out, and before that process was completed, he decided uh, to fire his attorney in in Johannesburg and to sever communications with us and go his own route. So yeah, he would have. I mean, I just put myself in the in the in the shoes of a prosecutor. Um, in a complex corruption investigation, it's very useful to have somebody. I mean, if we compare, for example, the Celebi investigation, we had a, a person that could have been prosecuted for corrupting um, Jackie Celebi, which was Glenn Agliotti. He, he decided to come clean and avoid prosecution himself. Now, I'm pretty certain that a 72-year-old gentleman who's not in good health would be able to negotiate such a deal for himself as well. Um, but he's elected to uh, bite the bullet and hope for the best. And I imagine, and I haven't, he's back in court, I think, in two weeks' time. Mm. I imagine he's going to fight against the extradition based on his ill health. I, I ask it in all sincerity. Is he demented? Is he, uh, is he of sound mind and, uh, and is he thinking clearly? Because it doesn't sound like it. Well, I, I think he's just got bad advice. You know, he's an engineer. He's not a lawyer. Um, and I think he's just got bad advice in, in the UK. And perhaps in the cold light of day, he may change his mind. But it will be too late to change his mind when they, they get him extradited. So, you know, the boat will have left without him. Um, and he will have to go back to South Africa under force. Um, and then it's extremely unlikely that he'll be granted bail. And he likely will be made a example of, given this country's uh, focus on fighting corruption. Well, if you look how the wind has changed direction in South Africa, you know, we've got a very competent head of the National Prosecuting Authority who's appointed a very competent, uh, or the president has appointed a very competent head of the investigative directorate, the ID as they call it. And there's no doubt in my mind that the investigation is rock solid. Um, I mean, we've got his bank statement, so we've seen all the transfers that took place. Um, Trindadi clearly thought rather than pay the bribes himself in the early days, he'll use somebody else's bank account to do it. And Mike Lomas, unfortunately, was the person that, that went along with it. Chris Logan, this is a crazy story, isn't it? Uh, and, uh, you, you just can't believe someone would go from mahogany row of a major corporate uh, to get themselves involved in this kind of skullduggery. Absolutely. And, you know, unfortunately, as I say, you know, it, it seems to happen time and time again in our neck of the woods. Um, you know, and it's always great shock, Steinhoff, Tongart, uh, you know, what we're hearing now. Um, 
it's it's just very sad and um Obviously, this is part of the reason why the JSC has this discount. You know, you, you don't have this level of um, lack of integrity in other global markets. Um, so, yeah, very sad. It doesn't help that Group 5 itself has now gone bankrupt. Uh, some time after sure. Mike Lomas was there. But you've got to think that a leopard doesn't change its spots overnight. Or does it, Paul O'Sullivan? Would, uh, would Mike Lomas have been... Uh, above board while he was running Group 5? Um, one would hope so. Um, I think he got himself into a corner and he made a mistake and it was a criminal, criminal mistake. And once he was in, he was in. Um, his bank account was used multiple times for, for payments um, and unfortunately that leaves him holding the baby. Now, um, a short while ago, while I was waiting for the call, I was listening to the mention of EOH. We flagged EOH several years ago. We went and met with the then CEO, um, a chap called Sinead. I can't remember his surname. Um, we met with him. We pointed out to him that he had directors that when we flagged the fact that they were involved with FDA, they owned, in fact, FDA, uh, we flagged over a billion rand in suspicious transactions with the South African Police Service, and at the time that we flagged those transactions, some of the directors of EOH exercised share options and sold shares. And several weeks later, they had a 35 or 40% crash in their share price. So we, we saw that as unethical. Indeed it was. Ernest Kaplan, it's, it's interesting. EOH always it had a smell for a long time, didn't it, before uh, things were uncovered by people like Paul and others? Oh, look, Alec, I mean, the, the, the thing with EIH was that the results were just so good, you know, 30% plus growth every year, year in, year out. So, you know, I think people would never have thought that, um, you know, there, there, there could be some, you know, um, skeletons behind the closet there. Um, and, and yeah, look, all credit to the current, um, new CEO, he's, he's doing a great job trying to, you know, weed out all the bad eggs and, 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 and put the company back on, on a sound footing. The problem is that it's still got that reputation now that, you know, a lot of clients probably get a bit nervous. Um, I, I think most of their clients are okay and, and he's restored a lot of that, but it, it still has a, an, a strange sort of sound to it, I guess. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, after all of that, uh, you almost uh, hesitate to welcome Rayburn Hendricks. Uh, you, you know the company, uh, Justin. Did my, did my due diligence this morning, Alec. Very interesting. Great to have you with us, Rayburn. Um, so, Ravigo, tell us more about the company um, ahead of its IPO or delayed IPO now, as, as we've been told. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for the time. I uh, much appreciate it. Uh, my, my name is Raven Hendricks. I'm the CEO of uh, Revega Africa Energy Limited. Raven, we know all that, but uh, <laughs> just get into the answer the question, please. <laughs> sure. Okay. So, um, um, Revega is an investment vehicle. Um, it's a limited partner in a fund uh, which will invest in uh, predominantly um, equity stakes in operational renew, uh, renewable energy um, projects in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, it's, a yield, it's a yield focused uh, vehicle. It's also a BE, like investment vehicle. Um, and, um, and we're looking to uh, play our part in the green revolution going forward, as well as to uh, be like an attractive um, investment vehicle for investors out there in the market. Rabin, let's get straight into it. I was looking at the numbers today, yielding eight to ten percent. Um, of course, you'll get some funds from the IPO, but how do you how do you plan to fund growth, yielding eight to ten percent, basically paying out all your earnings? Yeah. So the idea. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with yield curves. Um, uh, Rovigo will actually be Africa's first yield, uh, listed yield curve, like in our view. Uh, what the structure of a yield curve is, um, it's an investment vehicle which is designed um, um, to give like, investors stable and predictable cash flows, um, very similar to like a REIT. 
um, in, in, in some instances. Um, so what we are looking to do is pass through all the cash flows which are received from the underlying projects to shareholders on a semi-annual kind of basis. Um, how we look to grow that portfolio is to the extent that uh, the fund manager finds like additional um, attractive investment opportunities and which pass all like, the governance structures. Uh, we look to um, place um, um, or, or like look to uh, place additional shares in the market either through a book build or like a rights issue or a vendor placing. So that's the, the primary instrument um, or like mechanism by which we look to grow is by looking to place additional shares out there in the market once you find additional new investments. And then Rayburn, I see you've got six assets in South Africa. You guys are looking to branch out into sub-Saharan Africa. I don't have enough fingers on my hand to for, for the number of JSE companies that have gone to sub-Saharan Africa and failed. What makes uh, Revigo any different? Um, no, it's a, it, um, it's a good point. Um, the reason we mention that is that there is a electricity uh, revolution going on in the world and definitely on like the continent. Uh, we are looking to participate um, in that sector in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, the reason why we think it'll be different is that we'll always be looking to deal with um, credit with the uh, counterparty. So, the extent that that's not fulfilled, we won't be doing. Uh, we won't be making those like investments. And 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 what it need, needs is we'll need need some sort of uh, government guarantee or DFI um, guarantee needed to make those investments uh, credit worthy. Uh, just although Sub-Saharan Africa is an investment mandate, uh, when you when you look at the numbers, all the action in, in the short to medium term will be in South Africa. Uh, the South African Renewable Program kind of dominates um, like the whole of the African continent by size. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but there's been approximately 6,400 megawatts which have been contracted in South Africa from rounds one through four. We've just had, an, had another... 2,000 megawatts under this emergency risk program, which was in, which was recently announced, and the long-term energy plan for like, the country calls for another 20,000 megawatts of like renewables. So, like I think most of the action in the short to medium term will be um, in South Africa. But to the extent we find like attractive investment opportunities outside of South Africa, then we'll look to do it. That's an interesting interesting approach because uh, you know we all grown ups here. And in many parts of Africa, uh, renewable energy has actually been banned because there's not enough in it uh, for the people who are governing those countries. So I'd love to know which countries, and uh, there's not enough in it because they can't get the bribes, i.e. like uh, Jacob Zuma and his pals wanted nuclear because it was a trillion rand of which they would have skimmed off big numbers. I'd love to know which countries, if any, you can tell us about who aren't going that route. In other words, where you will be able to participate Many South Africans, uh, despite the track record that we've got, which isn't that great, but still see opportunity in Africa, which it surely is, if you can just get over this hurdle of having to cross palms with silver. Sure, okay. So like, like many of the uh, jurisdictions that, that I'm referring to have some sort of um, government um, program in place. And linked to that government program, because many of these, many of the African countries are not entirely bankable, or the or the utilities are not uh, bankable by themselves, um, have a um, have a have a DFI um, or like a or a um, uh, this is this an organisation like the World Bank or like the IFC there who provide a guarantee. In order to get that guarantee, there those programs need to comply with a variety of things, uh, such as the uh, um, equator principles, but very many anti-corruption guidelines. So, by participating in these uh, programs, you kind of get out of that like realm of like the uh, corruption cycle that you mentioned. Specifically, uh, there's a number of what countries. What, I, um, what countries? What countries are you comfortable okay, doing so, business in? So the ones which have our programs underway at the moment, it's uh, Namibia, Malawi, Zambia, Kenya. Those countries have existing programs in place and have actually completed um, requests for like, proposals and have gone through like the bidding and like the financial close kind of process. And we expect there to be many more, but then again, they need to be compliant with mm. um, like, well-established global uh, governance 
standards around that. Uh, I think that's a big, big warning for everybody else. Unless you've got a DFI or a global multinational like a World Bank and a, and a um, international Correct. finance corporation, be, be very, very wary. Chris, uh, as our guest co-host, any thoughts uh, that, that you'd like to ask on this new listing? Well, you know, conceptually, it sounds the right thing. I mean, you know, I did quite a lot of work on sort of Eskom in the past, and I know South Africa is classed as a potentially a, what they call a renewable energy superpower. By that, they mean the quality of our natural resource, be it wind or solar, if it was properly managed, we'd be a renewable energy superpower. And the potential from this is vast. Um, because if you lower your energy costs, all types of industries come to you. And in something like Australia, they're even exporting renewable energies, uh, be it solar, through a cable to Singapore. So there's vast potential, and, and it's good to see guys like Rayburn start getting a bit of movement there, um, because we need movement. Not much is happening. So, you know, I, I don't know the detail, but... You know, uh, from what I've heard, it's a step in the right direction. And, I, and all strength to you, Raven. <laughs> no, thank you. I mean, just to say, Chris, I mean, um, this kind of sector is a pretty niche kind of sector in terms of the number of uh, participants. It's also not very well known to, like, the equity investors um, on the market and, and sure. so forth. But there is a lot of movement. Uh, which is happening. There's a lot of good work which has been done by the DMRE, by the IPP office and the government. And just to, uh, just to reiterate, it's just sort of like the movement. Um, just uh, this year, we've had the award of like the emergency um, power, like, like the risk mitigation IPP program, uh, which is um, base load, a dispatchable program. But, and two weeks ago, uh, the round five of the renewable IPP program was just um, like released um, with a bid date at the end of August. So there's a lot of movement underway and expect there to be many, like more, much more of a going forward. And I also expect there to be, um, as the secondary market um, develops in these, um, in these assets, for institutional um, investors to become more uh, familiar with it and to be more like, exposed to these opportunities. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Interesting story. Uh, I like these, the, the, the quip that you gave there, Chris, about us being, South Africa being a renewable energy superpower. Certainly is the one thing we have got right, was, uh, was these different uh, uh, stages of, of opening up. But you do recall... Uh, it's only since Ramaphosa came back that the power, the IPPs and the renewable energies ungridlocked uh, because up until that point, there was not enough money in it for the crooks, for the… the absolutely, absolutely. It is such, it's a crazy world we live in. But there has been a lot of money in booze and you've done some work on distal, which really uh, makes one scratch one's head because here's a share price of 65%. During lockdown, during a period where its products, much of the time, was not allowed to be sold. So what are investors seeing in this company that seems to defy logic? <laughs> Great. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Um, well, its share price has just got back to where it was in February uh, not, uh, 2020. It, it fell off a cliff. It went from like 130 rand down to 65 rand. And it's now got back to 126 Rand, which has been an amazing performance because over the last nine months, they lost 36% of their trading days, being 132 days where, you know, government-imposed ban, liquor couldn't be sold. So, and over that period, they actually managed to increase their revenue by 8%, their volumes by 6%. So it is amazing performance, which has triggered this tremendous recovery in the share. And, um, you know, you need to break it down. But basically what's happened is that the resilience of their portfolio, which is broad-based, it's, it's everything from brandy to cider to wine to champagne, has taken share from mainly beer, 
And also importantly in that portfolio is some new innovative products like, you know, alcohol-free Savannah and then um, seltzers, which are great. So they've taken big share from beer or regained share too. And um, part of it is because during the lockdown, you know, you were worried if your booze would last. And beer is, I don't know Doesn't if you know, it only, <laughs> only has a Just three months shelf life. I, I was about to say, Chris, I think I've contributed to a bit of EBITDA from Distal. <laughs> but, but, but Chris, in all serious, going forward, how sustainable are these trends? I mean, uh, as you're saying, uh, well, taking a lot of booze back, putting it in your cupboard for long periods of time, wines and, and the likes and, and lots of spirits can be kept for long periods of time. But when things do go back to normal and, and COVID-19 isn't, isn't around, which I suspect will, will be in the next six months or so, what do you think the long-term trends are um, for, for a company like Distel? Look, that's very relevant. And that's something I think that the various Distel analysts are wrestling with. Um, what they're going to have to do, and there are early signs, they're going to have to become a more innovative and foster-market company. Um, and that there are some signs. As I say, they were quick out the blocks with alcohol-free products during the lockdown, with the seltzer, which has been taking huge share from beer in, in America. But we will see, you know, because beer companies, they're big, bad Gorillas, and not just beer, also something like Diageo. You know, Diageo is 56 times the market cap of Decel. So the big companies can, of course, drop prices to regain share, and that will be the test. Decel will need to be increasingly innovative, fast to market, and um, you know, driven to to keep things going forward. So, would you be buying the stock now, Chris, after this big recovery? Given, given yes. the other thing that, that uh, I know you've done work on is that every year the government seems to just label the booze operators with more tax, more excise duty. And if they're doing that anything like petrol, that is a growing percentage of the, uh, the take that the company has. Yeah, very good point. So just specifically – Excise as a percentage of Distel's revenue has increased from 16.8% in 2001 to 28.8%, which is a huge increase. In the last six months alone, Distel paid excise of 4.43 billion. 4.43 billion in six months. That's a lot of public servants, eh? Mm. Yeah, and, you know, if they hadn't locked down, the, the excise which they lost, I'm told, could have funded the whole vaccine program just very easily. So, you know, these are all relevant points. Once again, it's a South African company. I think the South African government has picked on its local liquor industry more than any other government in the world, you know, without doubt, even though <laughs> they're getting paid but Four billion rands worth. Wow. Chris Logan, <laughs> thanks for, for being our guest uh, co-host this evening. Uh, Ernest Kaplan, thanks for joining us as well. Before we leave, though, Brightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the market mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Justin? Lots to digest after the weekend, Alec, but I'll keep this one a bit shorter. Starting with the JSE All Share Index up at 67,800. Earnings season in the US. Let's take a look at what the numbers look like. Tesla beat on earnings expectation and increased revenues by 74% year on year, although the shares are down 6% this week. Google smashed earnings expectations by 70%, reporting earnings per share for the quarter of $26 per share. The shares have risen by 4.5% in the New York, in New York this, in the morning session. Microsoft also beat on expectations despite the share trading 3% weaker this morning. And the mother of all margin call strikes again with UBS reporting a three quarter of a billion dollar hit due to the Archegos demise. On the JSC, Sassel up 12 rand to 250 rand a share, Redefine up 7% to 4 rand 50, Capitec up 100 rand to a share down to 1,500 rand a share, and WBHO down 1% to 114 rand a share after the company announced that the PIC has increased its stake to 25% of the business. 
I won't repeat that last sentence. <laughs> in the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 14 rand 28 to the dollar, 19 rand 90 to the sterling, and 17 rand 29 to the euro. Gold is down at $1,774 an ounce. Brent crude is up at $67.60 a barrel. The premier cryptocurrency will put you back 780k Bitcoin. Remember, there are always exceptions to the rule, and hopefully Wilson <laughs> Bailey is one of those. <laughs> well, thanks uh, for being with us. This market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. We'll be back again, same time, same place tomorrow. Look forward to being in your company then. From the team here at Biz News, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.